done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Father, again, we thank you for the fact that your word is so very clear, that you are all-powerful, and that indeed your plan is being accomplished, that your good pleasure will, will, will actually take place. Lord, remind us of this during this election year. It seems like I keep hearing how we are so anxious as a nation. And yet as believers, we can have the peace that passes all understanding. Lord, again, we thank you that you sent your son, that he might be this acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Lord, help us to get excited about all the spiritual blessings that we have in you. Lord, again, we thank you that you not only sent your Son, but we have this Holy Spirit in our lives that is guiding us and convicting us and strengthening. You may be seated. Again, it's our great privilege to have Jason McGuire here. He's going to—I'm not sure what he's going to be preaching on. Um, but I will say this, because I was on vacation, as you know, for about a, a week and uh, had a lot of time to think. And I just—and since we're going through the Book of Daniel, I just kept going back to the fact of what I was just praying, that our hope is in Jesus Christ. You know, as we keep clicking through, you know, and everybody, you know, how many days to the election? How many days? May it not be said of true Christians that we find our hope and peace in some electorate uh, system, right? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And we've been praying for revival for many years, haven't we? I mean, I've heard for over 30 years, you know, may revival come to America. You know what? A lot of times revival comes when it gets really, really hard. And so maybe the Lord is actually answering our prayer. But again, we have to make sure that our hope is in the Lord. And I'm sure that's what you're going to say. In fact, if you don't say that, you're all out of the pulpit. So yeah, yeah, Jason's gonna, Jason is going to introduce himself and all the other stuff. By the way, just let me say this. There is a table. We did put the table up. The table's out there, and there's all kinds of great information, so please avail yourself of that. All right, thank you. Well, you got that. You got that. That's right. Well, now, how's that? We'll be, we'll be good to go? All right. Well, good morning. Um, I am Jason McGuire, technically challenged. And uh, hey, it's good to be with you today. Um, again, I'm Jason McGuire. I direct New Yorkers for Constitutional Freedoms and New Yorkers Family Research Foundation. Um, those two organizations really are sister organizations. They work to advance uh, the idea, the premise that strong families mean a strong state. You can't have a strong state without strong 
families. Many people think that the most basic building block of society is the individual. It's not. The most basic building block of any society is family. And so we believe that strong families mean a strong state. And so we educate social conservatives, particularly in the Christian community, as far as issues and trends and things that are coming down the pike that would have an impact on the family. So we're pro-family, we're pro-life, we're pro-religious freedom, we're pro-parental rights. But I also direct an organization called New Yorkers for Constitutional Freedoms. And in that organization, we lobby the state legislature. We actually uh, work the legislature to represent the interests of you before your elected officials when it comes to the issues I've just talked about, pro-life, pro-family, parental rights, and so on. Um, that's what we do. In our morning hour today, for those of you who are present downstairs, we said that we exist to influence legislation and legislators for the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in influencing the law of the land because it is a powerful shaper of what future generations believe. The law is a powerful shaper of what future generations believe. Whatever a governmental jurisdiction legislates, future generations believes is morally correct. Whatever a governmental jurisdiction legislates, future generations believes is morally correct. Let's have a word of prayer and I'll go ahead and illustrate that for you. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that you would clear our mind of all the clutter. Some of the sin things that we have yet brought before you, that we have not yet confessed to, Lord, even at this moment, we lay it at your feet. We say, Lord, that garbage, that rubble, that mess that we have uh, done, thought, acted, left, left in our hearts, we, we lay it at your feet. We say, Father, forgive us for that. We don't want anything to come between you and us today as we seek to worship and to honor and to study and to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. But Lord, frankly, there may be some other things too that are just busyness stuff. Things that the enemy would have us just to focus on or to get caught up on, to think that these things are so important. In reality, nothing else matters than right now, this moment, our communion with you. And so Lord, clear our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, everything we have, Lord, of all those things that we can focus on you and your word this morning. Lord, when all is said and done this morning, will we not remember that there was a speaker behind the pulpit but only that God's Holy Spirit spoke to us this morning. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever a governmental jurisdiction legislates, future generations believes is morally correct. My children, help me to understand this. And for those of you who have heard me preach before, you're probably familiar with some of what I'm going to say today. But I think it's important as we're always coming across new people that have not heard these truths before. I was um, traveling down the road one day and I was struggling with this idea and I was admittedly um, struggling with, with where I was at in life. I was a pastor for 11 years, not far from here in Naples, New York, town of Prattsburg. And during those 11 years, God was burdening my heart for the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of human life, and for the hearts of my elected officials. And I was burdened. I was praying, Lord, um, you know, I'm preaching in the four walls of the church, and yet I believe there's a message that needs to be heard outside the four walls of the church. What is my role, my place in your plan for where we are as a state and as a nation? And I was praying about that. And I'm driving down the road one day, and I'm thinking through some of these things. And I look in the rearview window, or the mirror, and I can, you know, I've got those little mirrors. You can see what the kids are doing. Well, I'm looking up in the mirror, and I can see my kids are all strapped in their little car seats. And this goes back a number of years now. So my kids were small. They were in their little five-point harness systems. You know what I'm talking about? Those are the harness systems where kids can't do anything but drool. You know, you kind of get them in and buckle them in and they can't move or do anything. 
But my kids were all in their little seatbelts. And at that time, we had three children, and Micah, Mariah, and Kirsten were in the car. Micah and Mariah were old enough to understand my question and to answer appropriately. My youngest daughter could still only drool at that stage of life, but, but they were all strapped in the little car seats. And I said, Micah, Mariah, is it wrong or right to wear a seatbelt? Is it right or wrong to wear a seatbelt? And my kids looked at each other like Dad had just fallen off his rocker, you know? And, well, Dad, we all know it's the right thing to do. And I said, why? They said, well, Dad, if you don't, a policeman will arrest you and put you in jail, you know? I mean, they took clicker ticket very seriously. But what they were trying to get me to understand is, Dad, whatever a governmental jurisdiction legislates, future generations believes is morally correct. At four years old, they probably didn't quite say it that way. But, you know, they were trying to get it across to me that, Dad, this is the law, so it must be right. Right? We, um, many of us today will remember growing up in a time before there was a seatbelt law. How many of you remember growing up before the mandatory seatbelt law in New York State? Wow, all right, you guys are an old crew out there today, all right. <laughs> How many of you remember growing up before there were seatbelts in cars? Yeah, that's right, all right, yeah, all right. How many of you remember growing up before there were cars? <laughs> okay, all right. Um, Truly, there was a time, and I know it's hard for, for some people to understand, truly there was a time where we did not have a seatbelt law in New York. It was not mandatory. And um, at that time, uh, there, there was a period of time where cars didn't have seatbelts, and then you could then purchase like retrofit kits at auto parts stores, and you could put seatbelts into your car. How many of you remember that? Yeah, you go like into advanced auto parts or whatever it was of the day, you know, and um, you'd go in there and you would buy like this seatbelt kit and you could go home on a Friday night and man, you could trick out your ride with a seatbelt, you know? And so instead of like, you know, whatever you put on it, lights or pinstripes or whatever, you just, I'm going to put a seatbelt in this weekend. Yeah, you know, and you could do that. And so you would retrofit your cars with seatbelts. And then they mandated that cars would put seatbelts in them, but they didn't yet mandate that you have to wear them. So between the period in which seatbelts were mandated in cars and before you wore them, there were people that said, well, there's a seatbelt here. Maybe I should use it. And they began to wear them. Guess what percentage of the population wore a seatbelt after they were mandated in cars, but before it was mandated that you actually wear the belt itself? Thirty-two percent. Higher number than I thought, to be honest. Thirty-two percent of the population said, you know what? If there's a seatbelt here, I might as well use it. And they began using seatbelts before we mandated the law. Now, New York State passed a law about 30 years ago that says that you will wear a seatbelt in the car. We put a seatbelt mandate. We've had some revisions to it since then. We've changed ages and which seat you're sitting and other things. But let's just say a seatbelt mandate. In the 30 years since we've had a seatbelt mandate, the numbers have changed. What percentage of the population do you think today wears it? Now, wait, before you answer, remember the premise of the speaker. This will help you out. I'm just helping you out here. Whatever a governmental jurisdiction legislates, future generations believes is morally correct. Little trick for the speaker. If his premise is the law changes behavior, it's probably going to be a higher number than a lower number, all right? So that's just a, that's a little clue. So 
30 years after we have a seatbelt mandate, what percentage of the population today do you think wears a seatbelt? 95% is exactly right for one of two surveys. Two surveys were done on the 25th anniversary, I think it was, and it said that um, 90% and another said 95% of the population wears a seatbelt uh, 30 years, 25 years at that point, after the mandatory seatbelt law. So let's call it 92, 93%. We have moved a population from 32% to 92% in 25 years. And all we did was change a law. Now, when the law changed, we changed enforcement of the law. We began to enforce this thing, and guess what? The ticket had an impact, didn't it? And education began to have an impact. And we have now come to a point in our history to where you ask people today, is it right or wrong to wear a seatbelt? And the children will say, it is the right thing to do. And there's always someone who says, well, brother, it is the right thing to do because God's law says not, you know, and we, I understand that. It's a great Sunday school answer. But I'm looking at the morally correct position. God's law says we should obey the laws of man as long as it doesn't contradict God's laws, right? Okay, get it. But that's not what our children are thinking when you ask them the law. When you ask them if it's right or wrong, they're just responding to what they know. I know it's true because when I try to pull out of the driveway after getting the mail, my kids will let me know if I don't wear the seatbelt. You know, if I get in the car and my mailbox is the end of the driveway, I'll buckle them all in and, you know, they're old enough now, they can do it. They do it right away. If I don't buckle up before I back up the car, they let me know in no uncertain terms. Um, Dad, your seatbelt's not on. Yeah, I know. I'm just going to get the mail, hop out, get the mail, put it on before we get in the road. Uh, Dad, your seatbelt's not on. Guys, I'm really just bet. Dad, put your seatbelt on. I'm going to die here in the driveway. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's kind of what they think. That's how they view it today, right? And, and this is where we have changed what they believe. Whatever a governmental jurisdiction legislates, future generations believes is morally correct. And so when we talk about something like seatbelt use, it seems very innocuous. We say, well, yeah, you know, okay, we've changed the behavior. What other behaviors is our government and those with certain interests in our government trying to change today? New York State has now passed a law known as Dignity for All Students. Dignity for All Students took effect this September in public schools all across New York. Dignity for All Students, for the first time, defines in the New York State education law homosexuality and transgender behavior and mandates that it be taught to all public school students in an age-appropriate manner. It passed under the the idea that it was an anti-bullying legislation. However, when the bill was proposed, it did not even include protections for children who are obese. They had no protections for, from children calling mean names or from, or from kids that had, you know, whatever it might be the kids pick on. Kids will always find something to pick on. It specifically dealt with these two issues regarding human sexuality, and it made an identity to be protected. Only after we raised a stink about it did the sponsors of the bill began to add all other things to the bill and say, well, I guess these people deserve protection too. As of September now, and every public school is now a part of the character development curriculum that New York State mandates, that children are taught as young as kindergarten about homosexuality and transgender behavior in an age-appropriate manner. I'm not sure how you can do that from an age-appropriate manner, by the way. I think it's a conversation that parents should have with their children when they feel is appropriate, not when the state does. But it is an effort 
to redefine what a generation believes about human sexuality. It is an effort to take what God's word has designed in the family and to redefine it. I was a pastor, as I mentioned, and um, I was struggling with some of these things and struggling with the direction that our state and our nation was going in, and I was praying about it when God led me to ask that question of my children and opened my eyes to realize the importance of the law. And I want you to understand that I believe the law is a very, very powerful force. It has an impact on our lives every single day. If you don't think so, don't pay your property taxes. You never own your property in New York State. You will always be renting it from the state. Because if you do not pay your property taxes, the law says you will lose your property. You'll always be renting it. Even when the mortgage is paid off, try to not pay your property taxes. You will quickly find out that the landlord will come down on you pretty hard. So the law is a powerful shaper on us, isn't it? It's a powerful influence in our lives. But the law is not everything. Now some of you who are here in the morning hour are going to have a leg up on me. You're going to know the answer to this next question. So if you want to look really smart, here it is. How many of you know that the Old Testament law cannot save? If we don't get those hands up, I'm going to start preaching a different message, all right? The Old Testament law cannot save. Pastor, I was a little concerned for a minute, all right, you know? How many of you know New York State law cannot save? That's the easy one, right? Okay. Um, so we know the law can't save. The law simply points out our need for Jesus Christ, right? Right? Even on its best day, the law says, man, you really messed up. That's, that's the best law can do, is it can illustrate to us this is the way to live, and you don't measure up to that standard. So you need Jesus Christ. You need a Savior. So understand that the speaker this morning is not saying that politics is the answer. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ is our greatest need. We've had Christian legislators. We've had Christian presidents. It has not saved America. That is not the answer. The answer is we need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in Albany, while we seek to influence legislation, because I believe the scripture tells us to reprove that which is evil, having done all to stand, that we are to do things. We are to, to occupy till he comes. But we are to be able to do things to say, this is what God's word says, and I'm holding to this standard. But I have to understand, too, that the answer is really found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we seek to influence legislators for the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a little weekly Bible study in the Capitol each week, Tuesday mornings between 8 and 9 a.m. And this year, something interesting began to happen. Uh, we began to note this little group that was meeting, and, and someone began to say, well, um, why don't we meet in the hearing room? And someone at first kind of chuckled at that. They said, well, the hearing room down the hall holds 400. We were getting a little cramped in this room. We've got 12 or 15 people. So why don't we meet in the hearing room? And, well, that'll hold 400. That's awfully too big for us. And someone said, well, today, but maybe tomorrow it won't be. Why don't we begin to pray for revival in the state capitol? And people began to look at each other and say, well, you think if God sent revival, he could send it to the state capitol? Can you imagine the New York Times trying to cover a revival breaking out the state capitol, you know? Religious fanatics raid Albany. You know, I can see it now. I mean, I long for the day. But, you know, when at first we kind of looked at it, we said, well, we think that, that a revival of God sends it would start here, it would start here, it would start here. And people were kind of like, but at the state capitol? Well, why not? Why not? 
If you look back through the history of revivals that we have had, often they do start in very uh, urban places, right? Why not? Could God do it? Sure. And so this little prayer breakfast began to pray about that this year, and some interesting things began to develop. As we began to pray about God sending revival to our legislative prayer breakfast, God began to speak to our organization about some things that we can do a little differently. One of the things that I would like to do, and I envision for our ministry next year, is bring someone on board who will be solely dedicated to ministering to our legislators and that they will have a visitation program, a discipleship program year-round, that they will work in that Capitol building. And even when legislators aren't there, we are still ministering to Christian staff that serve in that place. And so we began to seek out some people that might help with that. And we found some other people that are interested in that as well. And so I met with a man in the Albany area who says, you know what, God's been speaking in my heart for a few years about the possibility of a revival breaking out in the state capitol. I said, well, you know, I, I think maybe we may be onto something now because that's something we're praying about as well. And so who knows what God might do, that he might send us a revival right there in Albany. So we believe in influencing legislation and legislators for the Lord Jesus Christ. People often wonder, though, well, how'd you get involved in this kind of work? I mean, how'd you get started in this? And, well, it all goes back to um, one Friday morning following Thanksgiving. And it was a Friday morning on the day after Thanksgiving when I needed a laptop computer, and I went up to Best Buy in Henrietta to get it. It was about an hour and a half from the church where I was pastoring. And I um, arrived there. They didn't have a laptop computer, and it was very early in the morning. I was going to do a little hospital visitation a little later in the day. And so I decided to go over to the little IHOP restaurant there. You know what that is? Yeah, the International House of Pancakes, or My Little Heaven on Earth, as we like to say, all right? And um, we went over to IHOP, and I was, you know, sitting, I got in there, sat down at a table, and there was no one around to serve me, and the building was kind of cool, and the lights were down kind of low, and, and um, I just went in and found a table, and I opened up my Bible, and I began to read. And I'd like you to take a look at Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. I went to this little IHOP restaurant the morning after Thanksgiving. I'm dressed in a shirt and a tie, sent little table. I've not had the best of mornings. I'm not a morning person to begin with. Things did not go well with me as I was looking for this laptop computer that they obviously had given the one they had to sell to somebody else. And I didn't get it. But I'm sitting at this little restaurant and I'm trying to get my heart in the place where it should be. And I begin to read Proverbs 24.10. Thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. And I don't like that because, quite frankly, I'm in a place this morning where I'm not feeling very strong because my attitude is not very good. And I don't like to be told that my strength is small. And here I am fainting in a very mild adversity. And about this point, the waitress comes over and she begins to pour some coffee. And, you know, the coffee isn't quite right. And, you know, it's been a while since she's even gotten to the table. And again, and I mentioned my heart is not right. And as she pours the coffee, I said to her, I said, ma'am, it seems so odd to me that the morning after Thanksgiving, when you know it's going to be so busy in here that you are the only waitress on duty. And she looked at me, and, and she was kind of apologetic, and very apologetic, and she said, well, I'm sorry, sir, but um, there were two other girls that were going to be here today, but they called in sick. Now, where do you think they were? It's Black Friday. They're out buying my laptop computer, right? But um, 
but they called in sick. And so she's doing the best she can. And she leaves that table, and, and I feel bad because I, I really didn't treat her in the right way. And I was a little short with her, and I shouldn't have been. And, and I go back to reading my Bible, and it says, If thou forbear to deliver them, they are drawn unto death, and those are ready to be slain. If you say, Behold, we knew it not. Does not he that ponders the heart consider it? And he that keeps your soul, does not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? And I got hung up on that phrase. If you say, Behold, we knew it not. And I was thinking about that phrase as I'm watching people come into the restaurant that morning and and they're also looking for seating and there's no one there to seat them. And so I'm signaling over to them, just come on, get a table, she'll be here in a minute. And they're getting tables and and, and they're starting to complain about the fact that there isn't a waitress. And and I'm kind of agreeing with them, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, where is she, you know? And I'm reading these words and the waitress tells me, she says, oh, I'm so sorry. Two called in sick, I'm doing the best I can. And I'm reading these words where it says, if you say... Behold, we didn't know. Doesn't God consider your heart and reward man, every man according to his works? And the implication of the verse is, they say, well, we didn't know, but you did know. There's a problem. God holds you accountable. Let me step back for a moment. Because this isn't just going to be about IHOP, but it's about something deeper that God was doing in my heart and my life. I was pastoring this church, been there for 11 years. And um, I used to get these little cards in the mail that would say there was a town hall meeting at the town of Pressburg, you know? And it would have the name of my senator and the name of my assemblyman on there and say, come meet us from Thursday from 3.30 to 4. And, and I would uh, get that little card and I'd read it and I'd say, yeah, that'd be nice. And I'd pitch it like many of you probably do, right? And then one time I got convicted about that because I was reminded in my, in my heart that I'm supposed to be praying for these elected officials. And if I am commanded to pray for those in authority over me, and I don't even really know their names, I've never met them, how can I effectively pray for them? So I reached in a little recycling bin and pulled out the card and said, well, I'm going to go to this thing. And so I went down to this Pressburg Town Hall meeting at 3.30 on a Thursday, and I waited, and I got into the little room, and there were three little chairs set up. So I knew they weren't planning on a big meeting, Right? And I knew that two of those were the center and the member of assembly, and thankfully they thought at least I'd come, or somebody would, and so they put a third chair up. And so I get in there, and I, and I watch as the car pulls up, and out steps my senator, and out steps my member of assembly, and they walk in, and they look kind of surprised that somebody's actually there. And this was back before town halls were cool, you know? And um, so I, I went into the room, and I sat down with them and introduced myself and began to talk about some of the issues I was concerned about. After about five minutes, my senator kind of gave the nod to my assemblyman that it was time to go and kind of put his hands on his lap and began to stand up. He said, well, it's been good meeting with you. And I looked at my watch and I said, well, your card said you were here till 4 o'clock and we still got 25 more minutes to go by my clock. And I said it nicely and they kind of looked at each other and they sat right back down and we continued the conversation. And I learned that it wasn't so intimidating to meet with my elected officials as I thought it would be. And I began to get those little cards, and I would go again and again and again. And I began to talk with them, not only about the issues that I was concerned with, but I began to talk to them about issues they were concerned about. When my senator's daughter was looking to get married, and you know, I would ask him, I'd say, Senator, how do you feel as a dad? I mean, are you a little nervous about this or concerned about the cost? I mean, you know, good thing you're a legislator. You can pay for the whole thing, you know. But, and we kid about it, you know. 
But, you know, and we began to know them as people. When my member of assembly uh, went in and had a hip replacement surgery, I went to the hospital to visit him. And I walked into the room, and my assemblyman was wearing one of those little things that don't quite tie in the back, and that was kind of funny. And, um, <laughs> and so I walked in, and, and he looked at me, his eyes bugged out of his head. He said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I heard you had hip replacement surgery, and I came up to pray with you and visit with you. That's what we do. And he said, you are the only lobbyist that comes up here to lobby me when I can't run away, you know? <laughs> began to have a great conversation with him, built a relationship with my elected officials. Over time, I began to learn that not only could I share my concerns with them, but they could share their concerns with me. And God was burdening my heart for my elected officials. God was doing a work in my heart that I didn't even yet recognize. And so when I became concerned about the sanctity of human life, and that concern was growing, and my concern over the sacredness of marriage here in New York was growing, and my concern for my elected officials was growing, God was bringing all of those things together to lead me to where I would be today. One Wednesday night I was in our church and I was preaching in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we read just this amazing truth. God said in Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 1.27 so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. It's really amazing when you think about it. I mean, we have so downplayed the role of gender today. We want to act like there's no differences between men and women. We act like marriage isn't all that important, that life isn't to be protected, all these things. It goes back to the book of Genesis. These aren't political issues. They're moral issues. These are things that God created. God created the family. And because he's God, he gets to set the rules. And he created these rules for our own benefit, for what's good for us. Not because, you know, he's angry at us or because, you know, he wants to deprive us of something. He wants us to have it and have it to the fullest. And so he gives us this amazing picture. I mean, picture the scene when Adam and Eve... Adam, who's just waking up from the first case of anesthesia, by the way, right, is waking up, and true story, first case of anesthesia, the doctor that discovered anesthesia was a Christian, was reading through the book of Genesis and says, huh, put them to sleep, they don't feel the pain, let's try it, and decided to come up with this idea of anesthesia, right, science and scripture, meeting in the middle, wonderful story, and you go through this little thing, and so Adam is waking up, and Adam is uh, waking up out of his groggy surgery, which is amazing in itself, because now he wakes up with no pain, which is pretty cool, you know? If you ever had a knee replacement surgery, can you imagine getting up and playing basketball right afterwards, you know? And he has no pain, and, and, and he, he goes and he opens up his eyes, and there's God all excited. And Adam doesn't know what's going on. He just knows, last thing he remembers is naming all the animals, and looking male, female, male, female, and there was nothing for him, going... What about me, you know? And God says, oh, just wait, puts him to sleep. And when Adam wakes up, there's God all excited. Now, how many of you remember um, the, the movie The Fox and the Hound? You ever seen The Fox and the Hound? All right, don't admit it, man, I know. But, um, <laughs> but you know, The Fox and the Hound, and, and there's this scene, and there's this scene where Todd is the fox. And then there's Mama Owl, you know, big old Mama Owl, you know? And then there's this beautiful, young, uh, vibrant vixen, was her name, Fox, you know? And there's the scene, and there's Mama Owl, and she's about to introduce Todd to Vixen. 
And Mama Owl is all going, Woo, Todd, look what I got for you. Todd, come on out. And you know, and Todd is all like, you know, oh, I don't know what's going on. And Mama Owl is about, Todd, I want you to see something. Come here, Todd, come here, come here. Can you picture the Garden of Eden? Adam is just waking up from his surgery. God is so excited by what he has for Adam. Adam has no idea yet. And God is going, Adam, come on. Come on. Wake up. There's something I want you to see. I have something that would knock your socks off if you were wearing them yet. (laughs) I got something so amazing. And Adam, I have created this woman for you. Created what? Oh, well, just take a look. And Adam is waking up and he's blowing away the sleepy dirt from his eyes. And he looks across the room and after God steps aside or Mama Owl, however you picture it, there is Eve and she just flashes those little eyes at him. And Adam just goes, you know? And then, all of a sudden, she's got his attention. And Adam is just blown away by this. But you know what we do? We read the scriptures. We see Adam wakes up, but he looks across. He says, oh, there is woman. I shall call her thus, you know? That was not how it happens. I mean, this is amazing. He's seen all the animals in the field. He's going, there's nothing for me. There's male and female, male and female. He wakes up and he goes, whoa. (laughs) She's not quite me. There's something a little different about this one. But I think this will work very well. And he looks and he is so blown away by what he sees. He goes, whoa, 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 man. I'll call her woman. Yeah. Not quite like that. I want you to see the beauty of what God did. Because God at that moment created the most beautiful gift. And he presented woman to man. And he created Eve for Adam. And Adam for Eve. God has been doing that ever since. And I realize that not in every situation there will not always, uh, will not always result in marriage, and, and I get that. And I realize that's not even God's plan in every situation, everyone to marry. But for the vast majority of people, we cannot deny that it will. And there is God all excited about what God has created for you. And we live in a culture that wants to say, no, that's not good enough. We have a better plan. We're going to do it my way. And how many of you know that doing it your way always results in brokenness and hurt and strife? And some of you have lived that path and you've been there a long time and you know what I'm talking about. God has a plan. He has a purpose. When we walk in obedience to his word, there is a blessing that comes with that. And when we walk in disobedience to his word, there's a curse that comes with that. I want to encourage us as a culture to walk in obedience to God's word. All of these thoughts were going through my head that morning at IHOP restaurant. And I just heard this waitress 
say that she's all alone. And I've just read in the Bible that it says, you know, if you know something and don't do something about it, God holds you accountable. So I got it from my little table and I went back to the kitchen. And I went up to the waitress and I said, ma'am, um, you know, my name's so-and-so and I was kind of rude to you and I apologize. I'm a pastor from an area church and I've got a couple hours to kill before I can go on hospital visitation. Would you mind if I helped you pour some coffee and pass out some pancakes this morning? And the waitress said to me, well, actually what I wish she would have said was, I'm sorry, sir, insurance regulations will not permit. But you know, <laughs> instead she said, oh, would you? And so I walked over to the little rack where they keep the IHOP smocks and I put a little apron thing around my head and tied it in the back. And I looked down and the goofy thing said IHOP over here and Tiffany over here. And, uh, <laughs> and I began to pour coffee and pass out some pancakes. And, you know, I was going from table to table doing the best that I could, but I'm, I'm not a very good waitress and tips were not great that morning. And, um, and I'm going from table to table and believe it or not, I know it's going to be tough, but hang in there. People were complaining about the service they were receiving. <laughs> and apparently, I had messed up some orders. And, um, you know, I don't know much about customer service, really. Uh, only, I've always heard the customer is always right. So when I go to a table and I mess up their order, I don't know what else to say. I apologize. I tell them my little story. I'm just a pastor trying to volunteer. They were short-staffed. I'm sorry. I'll tell you what. Breakfast is on us this morning. And, you know, the first time I thought, no big deal. Second time, a little bigger deal. Third time was starting to get out of hand. People began to spread the word. The restaurant is filled up now. It is Black Friday. It is the day after Thanksgiving. Shopping is well underway. People are coming in for breakfast. You know what they do? They restock, retool, refigure, get out there, hit it again. And they're looking, and there's a guy in a shirt and a tie wearing the IHOP smock. And if you talk to him and your order is messed up, you get your breakfast for free. And word begins to travel around the restaurant. So I'm getting called to tables that I have not even waited on to hear their complaints. And I'm thinking, what is causing them to think that they can tell me the troubles of their day? And it dawned on me. I am in the shirt and tie and I hop Spock. They think that I'm the manager. And so word has gotten out that if you talk to the manager, breakfast is free. And so I am apologizing, giving out free breakfast all over the place because I don't know what else to do. And um, I eventually got called over to one table that I had waited on. And the woman at the table was very irate, and she had right to be. Her child had a peanut allergy, and I had served him pecan syrup. I feel bad enough already. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't realize what a big deal that was. I didn't realize the mistake I'd made, but I can understand now why she was so angry. And so I went through my little spiel. I apologized. Breakfast is on me. I'm so sorry. I'm a pastor just helping out, just trying to volunteer. And, um, you know, please forgive me, and we'll make it right the best we can. And I went back to the kitchen. And one of the women from that table got up, and she followed me back to the kitchen. And I thought, this is it. I'm done. They are either going to fire me or it's death by meat cleaver, one or the other, you know? So I get back to the kitchen, and I turn around. And the woman looked at me, and she said, I heard your story. She said, I'm a waitress from another area restaurant. I don't know a lot about IHOP, but I do know a thing or two about waiting on tables. Would you mind if I helped you pour some coffee and pass out some pancakes this morning? 
thought about telling her, I'm sorry, ma'am, but insurance regulations will not permit. <laughs> Instead, I said, oh, would you? And so we began to serve tables that morning, and here's the scene. The real IHOP waitress, who knows all about IHOP. She has the institutional knowledge to do her job, but she only has two hands and can't do everything. There is the waitress who is not from IHOP, so she has some skills, and she's hands, and she has abilities, but she does not have the institutional knowledge specific to their menu. And then there's me. I'm in management, and I have no idea what's going on or how to do it. <laughs> and we're trying to do the best we can in that restaurant that morning. About that time, the real manager walks in. I walked up to him. I said, hi, my name is Jason. I'm here from corporate. We're here to do a quality control inspection. <laughs> and he began to move pretty quickly around that restaurant. When he finally got a hold of a couple other waitresses, I went back to my table and I sat down. And my Bible was open. My eggs were a little rubbery and cold and my coffee had chilled. But my Bible was still open to Proverbs chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it, and he that keepeth thy soul doth not he know it, and shall not he render to every man according to his works. God spoke to my heart that morning in the quietness of my heart, not an audible voice, but just as I read those words, I could hear God say, Jason, do you know I didn't bring you here this morning to serve pancakes and coffee? Do you know my purpose for bringing you here this morning was bigger than that? And I have been struggling for about 10 months now over this calling in my life as to whether or not to leave traditional pastoral ministry was doing in this local church and to serve as the head of this organization that works in Albany and D.C. And I, I just was struggling with that. In the quietness of my heart, I heard God say, Jason, here's something I want you to remember about this day. It will always be easier to complain about the service you are receiving than it is to get up and get involved. It will always be easier to complain about the service you are receiving than it is to get up and get involved. Now, how many of you know that's true? If you're in ministry, you know it's true. Because you hear it from people all the time. Boy, can you believe those kids? Man, those kids spilled Kool-Aid in the carpet in vacation Bible school. It left a sting. <coughs> Little do we hear about six kids that got saved in that same vacation Bible school program. We complain about this or complain about that. And I hope I'm not being too harsh, but I, I know people. And we complain about the service we're receiving rather than getting up and getting involved. That morning, God spoke to my heart and God said to me, Jason, you can spend the rest of your time complaining about what's going on, the direction things are going in your country, in your state, in your community. Or you can say you'll get up and get involved. But if you're not willing to get up and get involved, then don't just sit back and complain. As Christians, we are not called to complain. We are called to be people of action. Now that action should begin and should continue in prayer. 
But that prayer ought to lead to an action plan to where we are doing something. How many of you have been in that situation where you're praying for your neighbor? You say, oh, Lord, would you send someone to tell Tom about Jesus? Lord, send someone to tell Tom about Jesus. I can see him out there mowing his lawn. He's having a hard time getting that thing going. Lord, send someone to tell him about Jesus. Lord, Susan's car won't start. The battery must be dead again in this cold morning. Lord, send someone to tell her about Jesus. At what point do you think God just says, hey, stupid, I'm sending you, you know? Sometimes I think we need to do that. We can pray and we can pray and we can pray. But sometimes we just need to be pushed out of the nest to say, how about getting involved? And so that day, God challenged my heart to go to this organization, New Yorkers Family Research Foundation and New Yorkers for Constitutional Freedoms, where we seek to not just complain about the state of affairs, but we seek to make a difference. We always understand that politics is not the answer. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We seek to influence legislators for the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to influence legislation because it is a powerful shaper of what future generations believe. Because there's a great deal at risk when we say that the sanctity of human life doesn't matter. There's a great deal at risk when we say the sacredness of marriage doesn't matter. When we say the government has the right to raise your children, it's not your chief responsibility. When we say religious freedom, well, that only means what you do in the four walls of your church, but not in a public marketplace of ideas. Those are all important ideas, things that need to be defended. And so now my question for you is, are you going to sit back and complain about the service you're receiving or get up and get involved? There's a few ways you can do it. As you leave today, I would encourage you to stop by my display table. We have a little card that looks like this. It's got the two organizations on both sides with all of our Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, website, social media stuff. At the very least, I would encourage you to do that, to sign up for some of those things so you can become better informed. If you would like to sign up, we'd also love to send you our print and our, our email publications as well where we'll tell you what's going on in Albany. We'll keep you informed, tell you what the issues are, so you know what's coming and what's going on and how you can be best involved. Life is busy. I get it. We can't be doing all the legislative stuff all the time. And so your support of our organization helps us to filter all the unnecessary stuff and tell you what is necessary going on in Albany or Washington right now. We want to encourage you to get involved, to know what's going on. The largest project that we're engaged in is an online voter guide. And how many of you know that we've got an election coming up? Anybody heard about that? Yeah. We've got an election coming up. And, you know, up until 2010, we didn't have the ability, and no one really did, to bring together all of the information about all of the races that you're going to have a chance to vote on. You know, you might hear about presidential races, maybe some congressional stuff, but whoever knew where their state member of assembly actually stood or a state senator? Well, in 2010, we leased a software through, a, through another organization called We the People, and we began to partner with them with voter data so you could type in your address on our website and it would pull up your ballot. All the people, all of the people that run for office on your ballot. And so we would send questionnaires to the candidates and they could fill out the questionnaire. We would post the information. You go to our little website at newyorkfamilies.org just before the election and you pull up this website, type in your address, and you see not only the candidates but where they stand on the issues. You check the little box for the candidate that you want to support. You go through all the races. You print out the ballot at the end. You take it with you on November 6th, and you say, now I know who I'm going to vote for. In an average election year, 95% of incumbents return to power. 
In other words, only 5% of the legislature actually changes after an election. 2010, we launched this little voter guide. The company that we partnered with called us up and said, what are you doing to promote this site? We said, why? They said, well, because we want to know. You're hitting a higher percentage based on the time it's been up than anyone else in the nation. What are you doing? We said, well, for the right price, we'll tell you if we get a discount in the 2012 package. <laughs> and, um, and they agreed, and we discounted it. We began to talk about what we were doing to market it. And essentially, it comes down to this. We began to market to churches in New York State. We gave out bulletin inserts that just said visitnewyorkfamilies.org. There was no information other than that on there. About, it's just it's a voter guide. Visit the website. People would go home. They would see what the candidates stood in the issues. They began to say, how cool is this? And they'd share it with people around them. And that election year in 2010, we had 350,000 page hits on that online voter guide. That translates to roughly 1 million voters accessing information on our site based on average household size. There's only 11 million registered voters in New York State. 18 million people, 11 million registered voters. We impacted roughly 10% of the electorate in that election year. Do you remember when I said that the average year, only a 5% turnover in the state legislature? In 2010, there was a 20% change in the state legislature. 5% and 20%. Do you think if we could do that through a few more cycles, we might see other people that represent our values winning elected office. We did in 2010. We've just gone through a series of primaries that's happened again, where there are Christian candidates that support pro-life and pro-family values that are winning seats. We want you to get involved. And so by this time in the service, people are getting pretty antsy because they know the end is near. And now they're thinking about their cell phones and who's called them and who's texted them and what their Facebook status is. And, you know, they've been wait until they can't tweet about how boring the speaker was today and that kind of stuff. And some of you have an issue. You have an addiction to your smartphone, don't you? You know who you are, right? Well, I want you to know that our ministry has started a little treatment program. We have a support group for people like you, all right? <laughs> and so at this part of the service, if you would like, you can take out your smartphone, all right? Now work with me here. This is, this is not just you to go check your Facebook status. This is part of our program, Okay you will go to your text message program and you will send the word freedom to 22828. If you're having issues right now, a little addiction action with your smartphone, just uh, shake off the tremors and text the word freedom to 22828. That will let you sign up for our emails right through your smartphone. All right? So just text the word freedom to 22828. Finally, let me just say that the adventures that we're involved in are not inexpensive. The online voter guide push was $10,000 for the software. It's an additional $10,000 to send 300,000 full-color full glossy bulletin inserts to 5,000 churches in the state. But I believe that we are at a critical juncture where we have got to stop complaining about the service we're receiving and stand up and get involved. And so we're pulling the trigger on it. We're going to go out there. We've committed saying we're, going to, we're committing $50,000 to this project, $10,000 on the software, $10,000 on voter guides. We're looking for $30,000 still for uh, advertising and other things we want to do. It's not a small project. But if there are people that are committed to helping us in this endeavor, I'd love to talk to you about it. Let's make a difference in New York State. I'm not ready to give up. I want to influence legislation and legislators to the glory of our Lord. Let's do everything we can to hand off a better state and a better nation to our next generation. I want them to know religious freedom. I want my kids to have a world far better than the one that I even live in. Let's do it together. Thanks so much.
Ronnie Lowe. Ronnie Lowe. Okay.